Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us uh, your children. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Lord, that we are now heirs and inheritors of your grace. And Lord, we pray uh, that as your children uh, who know you as our Father, uh, Lord, that we would uh, understand uh, just what is at stake uh, in the preaching of the truth about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 21, uh, kind of a, a little bit of a segue, but actually it's a very important point uh, in the life of the church. If you look at chapter 21, beginning with verse 17, I'm going to go ahead and read it uh, through to verse 26. Uh, but actually, uh, what we're going to do is have a conversation that really pulls out a lot of the background and this passage actually serves just as uh, a window on one and, and how controversy ends in the church. So look, let's look at Acts 21, beginning with verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, uh, that is uh, Luke and Paul and, and the rest of them, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you reach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, to, that you teach, sorry, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. The word of the Lord. Okay, so to understand this, you have to understand that a huge controversy uh, had raged in the church and was still raging in the church over what happens when you're a Gentile, uh, a non-Jew, uh, outside of the covenant community of Israel. What happens when you become a Christian? Uh, do you have to become a, a Jew first? Uh, do you have to be circumcised? Uh, do you have to then follow the dietary laws and, and other restrictions that the Old Testament talks about? And uh, this caused quite a bit of controversy because the first believers were who? Were Jews. And so they kept up with their customs and their, their ceremonies and, uh, and traditions. And so when the Gentiles began to believe, that wasn't the baggage that they had. All right, they, in fact, if you read Paul's epistle, epistles to uh, Gentile areas, uh, it's more talking about giving up the old ways of, of the Greek faith. You know, whether it's, you know, whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols uh, or uh, whether it's uh, right to do various and sundry things that under their old ways uh, were perfectly fine. Uh, but of course, uh, Christianity uh, and Judaism uh, have a very different relationship than Christianity and uh, the Greek 
uh, uh, pantheon uh, of gods. Uh, but to that end, what we find is that when you're in Christ, uh, you're a new creation, and you've entered into the covenant kingdom uh, by virtue of Jesus' death upon the cross and His resurrection, and not by any works of the law. And so what Paul was actually saying, and this is how rumors get started, Paul was saying, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the dietary laws. You have freedom in Christ. And in fact, we see that even Peter, who Paul will eventually confront face to face, and this is played out in Galatians, uh, that we'll actually see Peter uh, having a dream in Acts chapter 10 where God reveals to him that those old dietary laws no longer stand. Indeed, even Jesus uh, did away with the dietary laws when he said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. Uh, it's, in fact, what comes out. Uh, it, it's, the ma it's a matter of the heart. And so outward conforming to the law is not what I desire. And if you think that is what God desires, go listen to Mark Genelet again. Well, Paul goes to Jerusalem. People are warning him it's kind of dangerous. And, well, not kind of, it's dangerous. Uh, he goes in, some things never change. Uh, he goes in and they are, uh, they're worried about him. Uh, but while he's there, they make him do something really funny. And that is to clear it up because Paul is saying, look, if you want to circumcise your child, circumcise him. Uh, but if not, th then don't. But to show that he's not telling people to not keep the law, uh, the brothers there in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, tells, uh, tells Paul, uh, go to these guys who have made a Nazarite vow, you can go look that up, and uh, to prove uh, that, you have, uh, that you're not railing against uh, Moses uh, and the prophets. And so he does that, uh, which is a real act of charity, I think, on his part, because if I were Paul, I would tell them to go jump in a lake. Because uh, I'm one of those people who says things like, well, I don't really care what they're saying. Uh, I don't care about the rumors, but thank God Paul is much more compassionate and understanding than I am. And so how do we deal with controversy in the church? It obviously shows a great deal of humility on Paul's part to be willing to do this. He's not admitting he's wrong, uh, but what he is trying to do is to meet people where they are. Uh, many of you are familiar with John Newton. How do you know John Newton? Yeah, Amazing Grace, right? He was the slave trader uh, turned uh, Christian. And, uh, uh, but uh, John Newton, um, uh, actually, more than his hymns, uh, it was known as a letter writer. Uh, and you can actually buy books uh, of his letters, and that's what made him famous in his day. Uh, now nobody's ever read the letters. But he wrote one letter on controversy that I think is really, really good. In fact, I send it. Uh, to every incoming class of the vestry every year. And so we're going to look at what John Newton has to say. John Newton was great because he said, uh, he said I don't really have a taste for controversy. Uh, probably not a taste you would want to develop in the first place, uh, but nonetheless, uh, he avoided it but knew that it was necessary. And I've been thinking a little bit about this recently because... Uh, I, I once, uh, over within the past couple months, I was at Walmart where everybody takes to their kids to be spanked. And, uh, and when I was at Walmart, uh, these two boys were fighting. I mean, they were going at it. It was fisticuffs. If you had brothers and you're a boy, you know how this works. And, uh, and they were really good. And mom got involved and she sat them down and she said, boys, fighting is never 
the answer. And I just thought, Mom, I see what you're trying to do here, but that is not going to fare well for them down the road. Uh, now, I'm saying getting physical uh, isn't the answer. There you go. Uh, but fighting is not the answer. Well, sometimes there are things worth fighting for. <laughs> Uh, there are things worth going to the mattresses uh, over. And so I've been, getting, I've been thinking, well, what would qualify uh, for that? What would, what, how do you engage in controversy when there's something worth fighting for? Uh, the challenge is when is it right to fight and how is the Bible commands to fight the good fight of faith? And so in the church, there are things worth fighting over. If you think there are not, your presence at the Advent actually makes you somewhat of a hypocrite. Uh, as a Protestant church, birthed out of the Reformation, Anglicanism, at its very foundations, believes that there are things worth fighting for, even separating over. Looking much further back, though, than Henry VIII's break with Rome, we find in the pages of the New Testament controversy over serious matters, gospel matters, matters that would pit Paul against Peter and Paul against James, Jude reminds us that there is a perpetual challenge of defending the truth against its enemies. John warned of a church that was so lukewarm and uncommitted to the truth that it could not even muster a controversy. To be sure, the church has been sadly divided over the wrong controversies. I think of the Wesleyan revivals in the 18th century in England that produced a large, that forced a large number of Anglicans that left the Church of England, or even the Savoy Conference in the 17th century that resulted in the expulsion of thousands of the greatest minds in the Church of England to form the Puritan Church. Many of these splits are the result of the individuals themselves. There are some people, even some churches, that thrive on controversy and invite it. This is a blemish on the witness of the church and distracts the church from its task of preaching the gospel and making disciples. So how are we to know if controversy is right or wrong? We have to confront anything that is of paramount importance to the Christian faith. The points made in the creeds were birthed because of controversy. They were points worth fighting for. And even today, if one was to say that Christ was not born of a virgin was not raised bodily from the dead, and will not return again, prepare for a fight. In the American church, it seems as if we have less of that than we do the issue of optional subscription. As Richard John Newhouse pointed out once, where orthodoxy is made optional, sooner or later it will be proscribed. It will be ridiculed, it will be shunned, and ultimately it will be banned. This is what we currently face in our own denomination and even in our own diocese. I encourage you uh, to listen to Bishop Sloan's talk on January the 8th and uh, talk about the essentials of the creed, but leaving hanging up in the air that belief in the virgin birth may not be essential to the Christian faith. Well, to not believe in the virgin birth, as difficult as it is to believe that it could happen, is to undermine the authority of the Word of God and attempts to make an apology for Jesus. And that is not the role of a Christian minister, much less a Christian. It is true that he said that Jesus was the incarnation of God, that is our bishop, but the Bible makes it clear that such a feat is only possible through the virgin birth. 
Otherwise, one is left to fall into the heresy of adoptionism, which says that Jesus was a normal person until God adopted him as the Messiah when Jesus was baptized by John. It's a chiseling away, slowly but surely, at the foundation that can and will bring down the entire house. If you wonder whether or not orthodoxy gets prescribed, I just want to make something clear. Uh, we had an event here with George Carey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, a couple years ago when he visited. Uh, and in that, we gathered clergy from around the diocese, and one clergy person stood up and said, well, I have a hard time hearing what you're saying, Archbishop Carey, because the God of Paul is not the God of Jesus. And uh, went on to say that they couldn't uh, and would never preach uh, from any of the Pauline epistles, uh, would uh, actually uh, cut out bits and pieces uh, from the book of Acts. Uh, this person said they even cringed when those readings uh, happened in church, but that they would do them for tradition's uh, sake. And that was not met with any reproof. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury had something to say about that, uh, but uh, none of our bishops said anything, none of the other clergy. And in fact, uh, rather than coming here on January the 8th and talking to us, I think it would have been better suited for him to go to that church uh, and speak to them, because that's an issue worth going to the mattresses over. As politicians remind us, however, never waste a crisis. We should not ever waste a controversy. When controversy appears, it should drive to the church to Jesus and to the Bible. Disputes must send the church to its knees in prayer. Now, again, John Newton wrote this great, great, wonderful uh, letter on controversy, and he provides a godly way in which to handle disagreement in the church. And what has happened, there's a guy who wants to publish this article, and he's really proud of himself. He thinks this is going to demolish our adversaries. And in that day and time in the Church of England, the conflict were between the Calvinists and the Arminians. Not the Arminians that, that fought the Turks all the time, uh, but the Arminians. And you can go look that up if you want. Um, but uh, Newton coming from the Calvinist end and his unnamed friend coming from the Calvinist end. And uh, this Calvinist was writing and sent the article to Newton and said, what do you think of this? And then Newton responds to him, and he says, When you engage in a fight, you need to consider the following. Consider your opponent. Consider the public. And consider yourself. Consider your opponent. Newton writes, As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing, this practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him. And such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth even now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ 
forever. And so he says, look, if you're praying for someone, and if you do this in your own life, this is why I think Jesus says, pray for your enemies. One, you ought to do it, but two, when you're praying with, for someone who you're in disagreement with, it actually has an effect on you. It begins to mold your heart, and you begin to have a heart for them. And rather than being an object of ridicule and scorn, uh, they actually become an object of mercy. Uh, one of the great things that we see in the Bible is the response to controversy in situations where the faith is being undermined is actually um, not rage, not loud speaking, not protest, but tears. That's the biblical response. And Newton gets right to the heart of it. Look, one, pray for them. But two, uh, if they're a believer, they're just mistaken, you're going to be in heaven with them one day. And understand that the Lord is going to work this out. But Newton continues, but if you look at him as an unconverted person in a state of enmity against God and His grace, a supposition with, without good evidence, you should be very unwilling to admit he is a more proper object of your compassion than of your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does. But you know who has made you to differ. If God in his sovereign pleasure had so appointed, you might have been as he is now, and he instead of you might have been set for the defense of the gospel. You were both equally blind by nature. If you attend to this, you will not reproach or hate him, because the Lord has been pleased to open your eyes and not his. I mean, the famous line from John Hooper, who uh, watched one of his friends being taken to the stake and said, but for the grace of God goes John Hooper. And we say that today, don't we? But for the grace of God uh, go I. Uh, which hopefully is an acknowledgement that we have that if it weren't for God intervening in our lives, that's the state that we would be in. We're not Christians because we're smarter and better than they are. Uh, but because of sheer mercy and grace. And so our response is actually, even if they're not a Christian, uh, to look at them with love as an object uh, of mercy. In any controversy, even the most important matters, compassion should be what motivates us. Why? Fitzsimmons Allison, the former bishop of South Carolina, wrote a great book several years ago uh, called The Cruelty of Heresy. And the title says it all. Why is false teaching cruel? Because it hurts people. It, it hurts people. So, I mean, we can look up extreme examples of this. You know, if you have a, a hard time, I always love turning on the TV in the middle of the night uh, because what's on the TV? Craftmatic adjustable bed and infomercials and preachers. Why? Because who can't sleep in the middle of the night? People who have a bad back and just, you know, so, hey, here's a bed that'll solve my problems. Uh, people who are worried about finance, and so here's an infomercial that'll take me to the next level. Or people who are suffering from spiritual angst. Right? That's who's up in the middle of the night, and it's at that hour, I'm convinced the Holy Spirit goes to bed at midnight. Uh, that is just, that's what happens. And, uh, and uh, nothing good comes of it. Uh, but then, you know, the extreme example of preachers saying, uh, you know, if you just... Uh, if you just reach out and, and, and touch the screen uh, or send me $500, I'll send you this prayer-anointed scarf that if you wear it on your person, I'm not making this up, I actually heard this one recently, uh, I will send you this prayer-anointed scarf, uh, and if you wear it, uh, God will bring you blessing. Well, that person is just as likely to put the scarf on and get hit by a train. I, I, I doubt that anyone would say, God has blessed you <laughs> uh, because you just got hit by a train. 
uh, it's, it's teaching like that that really hurts people. But also saying things like, you know, um, Jesus really wasn't who he said he was. He's just a really good teacher. He's a good example to follow. Uh, that too, a deficient teaching on the Lord Jesus still leaves us dead in our sins and our trespasses. But that's not going to get us anywhere. So actually, it's the opposite of compassion uh, to preach false teaching. Uh, it actually is cruel and it hurts people. So where does anger factor in? There is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus displayed this in his own life, which was without sin. Anger is not sin when it serves as the appropriate response. Jesus turning the tables of the money changers in the temple. His anger at Lazarus' tomb. I don't know if you know that short verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. That doesn't mean that he was sort of weepy-weepy. It actually, that word in Greek is a primordial angst. It's sort of weeping uncontrollably, mucus coming out of your nose, drooling, uncontrolled, like totally undone. And there's a sense in which Jesus there is really angry at Lazarus' tomb because he sees his dead friend and says, this is not the way things are supposed to be. So he's actually angry at death, and that's when Jesus steps into the arena to do battle with death itself because the next step is to go to Jerusalem. But that's a rabbit trail, and I'm not going to go there. Or even Jesus' rebuke of Peter at Caesarea Philippi. Get behind me, Satan. In the same way, anger is the right response, especially when what we are witnessing will lead to hurt. It is not our own interest that we're looking to, but the well-being of those we love. We talk about this uh, a lot around here, that the opposite of uh, love uh, is not uh, anger or hate, but it's apathy. I mean, if you've ever had a child or a loved one who has struggled with uh, addiction, uh, substance abuse, something like that, don't you get angry? You say things like, I just want to shake them. And you don't say that because you don't care. In fact, your love for them is probably proportional to your anger over the situation. I mean, going back to Walmart, this happens there too, uh, you lose a child. That's also where you go to get away from it all. And so your, your children inevitably run off, and of course they're probably in one of those clothing racks they've got into the middle of it. Uh, but you're in a spirit of panic, and you're overwhelmed because you want to find your child because you love them. And the moment you find them, what do you say? I'm going to kill you. Right? Well, in the same way, our anger, especially if it's anger not rooted in our own interest, if, you're, if you've got self-interested anger, anger uh, that's not righteous anger. You're just, you're just mad because somebody, you, nobody deferred to you, that you didn't get your way. You're not insisting on your own way, but in fact, uh, you see someone struggling and you see someone hurting, and it rightfully makes you angry. Uh, a wonderful uh, little bit in the 1662 prayer book is the ordinal. And so the or it actually wasn't originally part of the prayer book. Uh, the ordinal uh, are the services of ordaining deacons, presbyters, and bishops. And uh, this is what's said uh, when you're ordained in, uh, in the church using the 1662 book. You have heard, brethren, this is to the person about to be ordained. You have heard, brethren, as well in your private examination as in the exhortation which was now made to you, 
and in the holy lessons taken out of the gospel and writings of the apostles. So they're asked some questions, and then you have some readings that pertain to ordination, and now you're leading up to this. Of what dignity and how of great importance this office is, where ye are call, whereunto ye are called. And here's the important part. And now again we exhort you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have in remembrance into how high a dignity and to how weighty an office and charge ye are called. That is to say, to be messengers, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord, to teach and to promonish, to feed and provide for the Lord's family, to seek for Christ's sheep that are dispersed abroad, and for His children who are in the midst of this naughty world, I love that, and that they may be saved through Christ forever. Messengers, watchmen, stewards of the Lord. Uh, that's the responsibility of the clergy. I mean, what, where does the word pastor come from? Shepherding, right? Shepherding. Uh, that's what pastors do. They, they shepherd. And, it, you know, I, probably the clearest and best, if you want to get a really good lesson on how ministers ought to behave, watch the Looney Tunes where the sheepdog is standing up on the, on the ledge. You see it where he walks in with Wile E. Coyote and they're just sort of having funny banner and then they clock in and then they're enemies and they're back to work. Um, uh, but, but the job is to be a watchman, to actually watch over the sheep and anything. Uh, your job is to defend the flock against anything that might harm them. And so even if, you know, you see Wile E. Coyote or a wolf down in the sheep pen uh, and the wolf says, I'm just talking to him. You don't need to worry about it. No, your job is to run the wolf out. Your job is to look over your flock. So you consider your opponent, uh, but understanding that although objects of compassion, anger is a natural response, and especially for those who are called into ordained ministry, that their job is to be messengers, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord. But Newton continues, consider the public. I went to a uh, long weekend event up on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. Does anyone know about Lake Winnipesaukee? What about Bob? That's how you ought to know about it. Although that was filmed at Smith Lake in Virginia, uh, but I've been to the real Lake Winnipesaukee too. And it was a church camp, and it was, it was pretty hippy-dippy. I'll just be honest with you. The girls were cute. But it was really hippy-dippy, and uh, it was, I really was having a hard time, and so I would begin to engage in these debates. And it turned out I was concerned more with winning a debate than I was showing grace in my defense of the truth of Jesus Christ. And how we engage in the fight is just as much a witness to the public as the content of our argument. Uh, the other day, uh, Lil, I'm going to name names. I'm not going to be able to name names when my children turn 10, but uh, up to that point, I'm going to use them. Lily was upset with Mary Cavill because Mary Cavill had Lily's jacket on. And Lily had left some candy in the jacket. And Mary Cavill may be the sweetest child on the face of the earth. She's just the best. And she actually found the candy and gave it to one of her friends. She said, here, I have some candy. Would you like it? Lily went through the roof. <laughs> I mean, tears, righteous indignation and about, you know, Mary Cavill, that wasn't your candy. You had no right to give it away. And I looked at Lily and I said, honey, you're right, but I'm still against you. Right? you know, how you argue your point is 
nearly as important as the content. Lily was right, but she was carrying on in such a way that it was real hard for me to align myself with her in that battle. When engaging in controversy, Newton begs us to consider three groups amongst the onlookers, those who are reading. Firstly, those who are in disagreement with you, which we've already discussed previously, the individual. As, Newton's, as Newton writes, though you have your eye upon one person chiefly, there are many like-minded with him, and the same reasoning will hold whether as to one or to a million. Secondly, Newton says that there are those who have no settled religious opinions, but know the virtues of meekness, humility, and love that are characteristic of Christianity. A lack of any of those will immediately repulse the readers from your position, no matter how right it is. Many in our culture cling to such ideas and use Christian infighting as a reason for their unbelief. Unfortunately, they mistake Christian virtues for the faith of the Christian. Indeed, to take it further, no matter what position a Christian might take, the deck is stacked against them culturally. By default, the position will be seen as arrogant and unloving unless it affirms what the culture itself believes and espouses, which means that it's all the more important uh, for us to have our conversations marked uh, by those virtues. Newton writes, The weapons of our warfare, and which alone are powerful to break down the strongholds of error, are not carnal, but spiritual. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual realms. Arguments fairly drawn from Scripture and experience, and enforced by such a mild address as may persuade our, our readers that whether we can convince them or not, we wish well to their souls and contend only for the truth's sake. If we can satisfy them that we act upon these motives, our point is half gained. They will be more disposed to consider calmly what we offer. And if they should still dissent from our opinions, they will be constrained to approve of our intentions. The final group are those in the public who agree with us. They are going to agree with you no matter what, but your words could inflame a partisanship that does a disservice to the gospel. I myself would do well to listen to Newton when he writes, The best of men are not wholly free from this leaven, and therefore are too apt to be pleased with such representations as hold up our ad adversaries to ridicule and by consequence flatter our own superior judgments. Controversies, for the most part, are so managed as to indulge rather than to repress his wrong disposition. And therefore, generally speaking, they are productive of little good. They provide those whom they should convince and puff up those whom they should edify, provoke those whom they should convince and puff up those whom they should edify. I hope your performance will savor of a spirit of true humility and be a means of promoting it in others. And finally... Newton says, consider yourself. It seems a laudable service, he writes, to defend the faith once delivered to the saints. We are commanded to contend earnestly for it and to convince gainsayers. If ever such defenses were seasonable and expedient, they appear to be so in our day, when errors abound on all sides and every truth of the gospel is either directly denied or grossly misrepresented. This was written in 1740, so don't think that anything's new under the sun. And yet we find but very few writers of controversy who have not been manifestly hurt by it. Either they grow in a sense of their own importance 
or imbibe an angry, contentious spirit, or they insensibly withdraw their attention from those things which are the food and immediate support of the life of faith. Does that sound familiar? Remember the 1662 ordinal? Right? Provide for the Lord's family and spend their time and strength upon matters which are most but of a secondary value. This shows that if the service is honorable, it is dangerous. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at some point he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made? Anyone who has been involved in controversy will understand the toll that it takes on your heart and soul. The sleepless nights, the inability to think of anything else, the inability to stop arguing about it. When I was uh, working for a ministry, uh, when Lauren and I were dating, it was the beginning of blogs. Blogs were just kind of becoming a thing. And so I printed uh, on the blog a report on a visit that I had made to a certain area of the United States that I called a spiritually dark place. And I didn't know that people from that spiritually dark place would read the blog. <laughs> and so they began commenting. And I couldn't help but read them. I was sucked back into it. I always wanted to see what they were commenting on. And, uh, and after a while, somebody began to engage with them and really give it back to them. And uh, Lauren called me on the phone and she said, hey, I'm glad to see that somebody is, uh, is really giving it back to them and, uh, and standing up for what your article says. And that somebody sounds an awful lot like you. <laughs> I, of course, denied it. Uh, but she was right. Um, in fact, if you've ever made, if your name has ever shown up in an AL.com article, uh, what do you do? You immediately look at the comments. Uh, you, you immediately look at the comments. In fact, I was looking for one when I was made the dean and rector of the Advent. Someone had a comment that was real snarky, but I thought was one of the funniest things I'd ever read in my life, and I can't say it here in the class. Uh, but they took it off. Uh, they took it off, and so I asked Greg Garrison, the religion reporter, to put it back up. Um, but when you get engaged in controversy, it's very easy to think that you are in control, but actually the issue has control over you. And it begins to determine and dictate your patterns of behavior. But what runs throughout Newton's letter, albeit not explicit, is to consider finally the glory of God. His final paragraph begins, if we act in a wrong spirit, we shall bring little glory to God that in anything that we engage in, it, it shouldn't be putting attention on the individuals uh, involved, uh, but actually should be turning the church uh, to Jesus himself. Uh, that's what we're talking about, uh, because if Jesus is not at the center of it, uh, then you probably are arguing over something that is of little value. And when you go astray in areas of controversy, as Newton wisely points out, it actually robs God of His, of his glory uh, and really sucks you into something that is unhealthy uh, and is a blemish on the face uh, of the church. And so controversy is not something that we uh, should seek out, but really be discerning about. And if we do engage in controversy, uh, it should be marked 
uh, with uh, compassion, uh, and sometimes it should also be marked with anger uh, and hard words, but things that have to be said. And I would say that this is applicable not just in matters of church controversy, but in your own personal lives. Uh, if, you, uh, if you find yourself uh, locked in a fight uh, with uh, someone that you love uh, and it's consuming you, uh, I think Newton's words are just as apt for that, uh, to pray for the person, uh, to see them uh, as an object of mercy, uh, to be compassionate towards them, uh, and to really ask God uh, not just to work on their heart, but above all, to work on your own heart. Questions, comments, concerns? Andrew, I appreciate what you said. I'm struck by the examples of Peter and Paul, Paul and Barnabas, all three holy men driven by the gospel. How are we as uninformed lay people to react to a controversy between yeah. people that we respect and, and honor and do God's will in that process? Yeah, let me just say conflict and controversy are actually not bad things. Uh, it's how they're handled where things start to go pear-shaped. That, that's the problem. And so I think, um, one, giving benefit of the doubt. Uh, so, for instance, with Paul and Barnabas split, Paul letting Barnabas go, uh, just letting him go and, and trusting that the Lord uh, would work it out. Uh, with Peter, Paul was much more explicit. Uh, and I think that the reason why was because Peter had such a prominent position in the church. He was the head of the church there in Jerusalem. And then when he left, James took over for him, Jesus' brother. And, um, and I think because Peter had such a prominent position in the life of the church, especially concerning uh, matters of faith, it was really important for Paul to say, you're wrong. You're wrong. And he didn't say, it wasn't about Peter, as uh, Paul says in Galatians, that the very gospel was at stake. You know, it's very interesting that in the Corinthian church, which was rampant sexual immorality, not once in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, did he question whether or not they were the church. All right? He believed that the church could sort this out and that they could move forward on it. But when he writes to the Galatians, he says, you're in jeopardy of actually not being the church because you've lost the gospel. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And understanding that it's a spiritual issue. So I think what Paul understood and what Peter understood and what Barnabas understood is that my fight is not with Peter. Uh, my fight, this is a spiritual issue. I mean, one of the big things that, that we forget, and I prayed this and I should have brought it up, but when you go from, you know, this is a hard thing for people in our day and age to hear, that before you're a Christian, the Bible says you're an object of wrath. It actually goes so far to say as you're a child of the devil. Now, that, that's pretty harsh. Uh, but the thing about it is, is that when you're a Christian, uh, you're transferred into the kingdom of God and you're made a child of God, which means before you were an enemy of God and a friend of Satan, now you're a child of God, but who's your enemy now? The devil. That's your enemy who prowls about trying to devour you. All right, this is why you need watchmen. This is why you need people looking out. And I think it's very interesting. I talked to the vestry about this the other day in Ephesians 6 when Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God, you know, the helmet, the breastplate, the sword, uh, the sandals. 
one thing that I didn't realize until just a couple years ago is that all of that armor and protection protects the front, not the back, which means what? We're to face it head on. We're to face it head on. We're soldiers. We're actually soldiers. And, uh, and nowhere in the Bible, I know people think this is funny, but uh, it actually never says flee from the devil. Uh, it actually says uh, it, that uh, uh, resist temptation and the devil will flee from you. Right? So for Christians, uh, our job is to be armed and, and looking uh, forward, not sporting for a fight, spoiling for a fight, uh, but knowing that, that our adversary, the devil, is, is about and that these are spiritual issues and that uh, there are people who get co-opted by the devil and, and do his work, but making sure that we understand that, that we're dealing with messengers and not the people behind it. Now, the issues that we're dealing with, um, you know, Jesus sang to Peter, get behind me, Satan, understanding that he wasn't talking to Peter. He was talk he's talking about the father of lies. What Peter has just said was a lie straight from the pit of hell. Surely you won't die. Surely you won't be handed over to suffering and death. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So, I mean, it's, it's a serious business, but again, he doesn't say, Peter, be quiet. But he speaks to the very source of the lie. So I have a question about when you were reading that letter and it talked about partisanship undermining the gospel. And I find recently, at least because of the election, there's a lot of controversy around political issues, probably because there's right. a lot of dictating of moral values through our political system right. recently. Yeah. So how do we as Christians, how do we deal, because that's where a lot of conflict, at least when I've talked to Christians, is coming up now, and how do we not undermine our ministry? Yeah, yeah, yeah so uh, yeah, Romans 13, 14 is a really good, two good chapters to read about um, our, our place in, in the life of of the world on this. I think first and foremost, and we talked about this a little bit leading up to election day here at the Advent, votes don't change people's hearts. Jesus does. And I find that the more you get wound up about these politics, and some of these are, are very significant, serious issues, but I found that the more I get wound up, the less trust I have in God to actually work it out. And so I think that it's up to me uh, and there are times where God doesn't need you to defend Him. God can do that on His own. And so there are times, actually, like in Acts 21 with Paul, there are times just to be quiet and let God uh, sort that out. There are lots of examples in the Bible where actually uh, Ezekiel being a very good example of this, of just being very quiet. And then there are times to slay the priest of Baal, that's for sure. But... I think that in one is understanding uh, Christians are going to disagree over politics. Politics isn't going to save the world. And so one of the things that we've lost in America, I think almost completely, is civil discourse. Because all politics is now personal. If you say something political uh, and it's in contradiction to what someone else has said, they're wounded personally. And so that means you actually can't have a real conversation uh, about politics. So I've gotten fairly apolitical um, and, uh, and just say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Um, I mean, I do care about the tax code. That's the one thing I care about. <laughs> Let's be honest. I have a conversation about the tax code. But, uh, but you know, this other stuff, um, 
Presidents of the United States, prime ministers, even kings of this world are footnotes in history. Jesus is the beginning and the end of it all. It's all about him. So don't get bogged down in the footnotes. Anything else? Yes, Troy. To, uh, to build on Jim Goyer's question in, in your comment about when the bishop came and talked about um, the, the topics that he addressed with us, talk to us a little bit about how you uh, guide us as we have, we're within a denomination that we're not on the same page with theologically often, right. um, and, and how we live that out even within our diocese, the way we're right. trying to walk together even when we're not always in disagreement. Would you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing is um, if you all find the perfect church, uh, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Um, that's, that's one thing. Um, I mean, part of it is that, you know, a lot of the issues that the Episcopal Church deals with are not, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, people would say, well, those are those, just those crazy Episcopalians in California. It's our entire nation now. I mean, the, the issues that we deal with as a denomination uh, are now deep cultural issues that we're having conversations about. And I think that, uh, that we ought to, uh, regardless uh, of, of where we find ourselves in any denomination, uh, that we ought to make stances for the truth, but not spoiling for a fight uh, in that way. And so my approach with our bishop is to actually be his friend, to come alongside and build a relationship with him, to engage people in conversation. So I've gone next door and I've asked him, I said, Bishop, I just want to have a cup of coffee with you. And what if we just opened our Bibles for an hour and sat down and, and read the Word together and talked about it? Uh, I think that that uh, is much more impactful uh, than other ways. So, I mean, some people like to get up at, at denominational events and scream and yell and draft statements. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff, uh, uh, again, I think people should read Newton's letter before they get involved in that. But I think that the biggest thing that the Advent can do is just keep being the Advent uh, and don't get sidetracked and bogged down in controversies of the day. Because I've read the end of the book, Jesus wins. Right. Uh, and in fact, when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, yeah, I was, I was wrong about that. <laughs> wrong about, no one's going to get to see the Lord and say, I had it all figured out. I was right on everything. Uh, that's just not going to happen. And so, uh, but just being, you know, very clear, uh, but compassionate. And I think that that, if your conversations are marked with honesty, rooted in compassion, uh, that makes a huge, huge difference. And so, also, I'm not really interested in getting into the side issues because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about in, uh, in the American church are actually symptoms of the deeper problem. And so, uh, you can treat the symptoms all day long, uh, but if you don't deal with the root issue, uh, you're going to continue to deal with those symptoms. And so, you've got to go right to the core of it. And so, I think that having conversations about who Jesus is and what he's done for that. The fruit of that is all the other stuff begins to work itself out. So it's an out, inside out conversation than an outside in conversation. Go in peace to fight, just kidding, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>